Chapter Twenty Nine, Part Two of The Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lonnie Small. The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni. Chapter Twenty Nine, Part Two. The children gathered with great glee round their old friend Agnesi. Very soon, however, the tailor desired one of his little girls, the same that had carried that gift of charity to the widow Maria, who knows if any reader remembers it, to go and shell a few early chestnuts, which were deposited in one corner, and then put them to roast. And you, he said to a little boy, go into the garden and shake the peach tree till some of the fruit falls, and bring them all here. Go. And you, said he to another, go climb the fig tree and gather a few of the ripest figs. You know that business too well already. He himself went to tap a little barrel of wine, his wife to fetch a clean tablecloth. Perpetua took out the provisions. The table was spread. A napkin and earthenware plate were placed at the most honorable seat for Don Abondio, with a knife and fork which Perpetua had in the basket. The dinner was dished and the party seated themselves at the table, and partook of the repast, if not with great merriment, at least with much more than any of the guests had anticipated enjoying that day. "'What say you, Signor Curate, to a turn-out of this sort?' said the tailor. "'I could fancy I was reading the history of the Moors in France.' "'What say I? To think that even this trouble should fall to my lot.' "'Well, you've chosen a good asylum,' resumed the host. "'People would be puzzled to get up there by force.' and you'll find company there. It's already reported that many have retreated thither, and many more are daily arriving. I would fain hope, said Don Abondio, that we shall be well received. I know this brave signor, and when I once had the pleasure of being in his company, he was so exceedingly polite. And he sent word to me, said Ignisi, by his most illustrious lordship, that if I ever wanted anything I had only to go to him. A great and wonderful conversion! resumed Don Abondio, and does he really continue to persevere? Oh, yes, said the tailor, and he began to speak at some length upon the holy life of the unnamed, and how from being a scourge to the country he had become its example and benefactor. And all those people he kept under him, that household, rejoined Don Abondio, who had more than once heard something about them, but had never been sufficiently assured of the truth. They are most of them dismissed, replied the tailor, and they who remain have altered their habits in a wonderful way. In short, this castle has become like the Thebaid. You, signor, understand these things. He then began to recall with Agnesi the visit of the cardinal. A great man, said he, a great man. Pity that he left us so hastily, for I did not and could not do him any honor. How often I wish I could speak to him again, a little more at my ease. Having left the table, he made them observe an engraved likeness of the cardinal, which he kept hung up on one of the doorposts, in veneration for the person, and also that he might be able to say to any visitor that the portrait did not resemble him. For he himself had had an opportunity of studying the cardinal close by, and at his leisure, in that very room. "'Did they mean this thing here for him?' said Agnesi. "'It's like him in dress, but—' It doesn't resemble him, does it? said the tailor. I always say so, too. But it bears his name, if nothing more. It serves as a remembrance. 
Don Abondio was in a great hurry to be going, the tailor undertook to find a conveyance to carry them to the foot of the ascent, and having gone in search of one, shortly returned to say that it was coming. Then, turning to Don Abondio, he added, Signor Curie, if you should ever like to take a book with you up there to pass away the time, I shall be glad to serve you in my poor way, for I sometimes amuse myself a little with reading. They're not things to suit you, being all in the vulgar tongue, but perhaps— Thank you, thank you, replied Don Abundio. Under present circumstances, one has hardly brains enough to attend to what we are bid to read. While offering and refusing thanks, and exchanging condolence, good wishes, invitations, and promises to make another stay there on their return, the cart arrived at the front door. Putting in their baskets, the traveling party mounted after them, and undertook with rather more ease and tranquillity of mind the second half of their journey. The tailor had related the truth to Don Abondio about the unnamed. From the day on which we left him, he had steadily persevered in the course he had proposed to himself, atoning for wrongs, seeking peace, relieving the poor, and performing every good work for which an opportunity presented itself. The courage he had formerly manifested in offense and defense now showed itself in abstaining from both one and the other. He had laid down all his weapons, and always walked alone, willing to encounter the possible consequence of the many deeds of violence he had committed, and persuaded that it would be the commission of an additional one to employ force in defense of a life which owed so much to so many creditors, and persuaded, too, that every evil which might be done to him would be an offense offered to God, but with respect to himself a just retribution, and that he, above all, had no right to constitute himself a punisher of such offenses. However, he had continued not less inviolate than when he had kept in readiness for his security so many armed hands and his own. The remembrance of his former ferocity, and the sight of his present meekness, one of which it might have been expected would have left so many longings for revenge, while the other rendered that revenge so easy, conspired instead to procure and maintain for him an admiration which was the principal guarantee for his safety. He was that very man whom no one could humble, and who had now humbled himself. Every feeling of rancor, therefore, formerly irritated by his contemptuous behavior and by the fears of others, vanished before this new humility. They whom he had offended had now obtained beyond all expectation and without danger a satisfaction which they could not have promised themselves from the most complete revenge, the satisfaction of seeing such a man mourning over the wrongs he had committed and participating, so to say, in their indignation. More than one, whose bitterest and greatest sorrow had been for many years, that he saw no probability of ever finding himself, in any instance, stronger than this powerful oppressor, that he might revenge himself for some great injury, meeting him afterwards alone, unarmed, and with the air of one who would offer no resistance, felt only an impulse to salute him with demonstrations of respect. In his voluntary abasement, his countenance and behavior had acquired, without his being aware of it, something more lofty and noble, because there was in them, more clearly than ever, the absence of all fear. The most violent and pertinacious hatred felt, as it were, restrained and held in awe by the public veneration for so penitent and beneficent a man. This was carried to such a length that he often found it difficult to avoid the public expression of it which was addressed to him, 
and was obliged to be careful that he did not evince too plainly in his looks and actions the inward compunction he felt, nor abuse himself too much, lest he should be too much exalted. He had selected the lowest place in church, and woe to anyone who should have attempted to preoccupy it. It would have been, as it were, usurping a post of honor. To have offended him, or even to have treated him disrespectfully, would have appeared not so much a criminal or cowardly as a sacrilegious act, and even they who would scarcely have been restrained by this feeling on ordinary occasions participated in it, more or less. These and other reasons sheltered him also from the more remote animadversions of public authority, and procured for him, even in this quarter, the security to which he himself had never given a thought. His rank and family, which had at all times been some protection to him, availed him more than ever, now that personal recommendations, the renown of his conversion, was added to his already illustrious and famous, or rather infamous, name. Magistrates and nobles publicly rejoiced with the people at the change, and it would have appeared very incongruous to come forward irritated against a man who was the subject of so many congratulations. Besides, a government occupied with a protracted and often unprosperous war against active and oft-renewed rebellions would have been very well satisfied to be freed from the most indomitable and irksome without going in search of another the more so as this conversion produced reparations which the authorities were not accustomed to obtain nor even to demand to molest a saint seemed no very good means to ward off the reproach of having never been able to repress a villain and the example they would have made of him would have had no other effect than to dissuade others like him from following his example probably too the share that cardinal federigo had had in his conversion and the association of his name with that of the convent served the latter as a sacred shield and in the state of things and ideas of those times in the singular relations between the ecclesiastical authority and the civil power which so frequently contended with each other without at all aiming at mutual destruction nay were always mingling expressions of acknowledgment and protestations of deference with hostilities and which not unfrequently cooperated toward a common end without ever making peace in such a state of things it might also seem in a manner that the reconciliation of the first carried along with it if not the absolution at least the forgetfulness of the second when the former alone had been employed to produce an effect equally desired by both thus that very individual who had he fallen from his eminence would have excited emulation among small and great in trampling him under foot now having spontaneously humbled himself to the dust was reverenced by many and spared by all true it is that there were indeed many to whom this much talked of change brought anything but satisfaction many hired perpetrators of crime many other associates in guilt who thereby lost a great support on which they had been accustomed to depend and who beheld the threads of a deeply woven plot suddenly snapped, at the moment, perhaps, when they were expecting the intelligence of its completion. But we have already seen what various sentiments were awakened by the announcement of this conversion in the ruffians, who were with their master at the time, and heard it from his own lips. Astonishment, grief, depression, vexation, a little, indeed, of everything except contempt and hatred. The same was felt by the others whom he kept dispersed at different posts, and the same by his accomplices of higher rank when they first learned of the terrible tidings, and by all for the same reasons. 
Much hatred, however, as we find it in the passages elsewhere cited by Ripamonti, fell to the share of the Cardinal Federigo. They regarded him as one who had intruded like an enemy into their affairs. The unnamed would see to the salvation of his own soul, and nobody had any right to complain of what he did. From time to time, the greater part of the ruffians in his household, unable to accommodate themselves to the new discipline, and seeing no probability that it would ever change, gradually took their departure. Some went in search of other masters, and found employment, perchance, among the old friends of the patron they had left. Others enlisted in the Terzo of Spain or Mantua, and any other belligerent power. Some infested the highways to make war on a smaller scale and on their own account, and others again contented themselves with going about as beggars at liberty. The same courses were pursued by the rest who had acted under his orders in different countries. Of those who had contrived to assimilate themselves to his new mode of life, or had embraced it of their own free will, the greater number, natives of the valley, returned to the fields, or to the trades which they had learnt in their early years, and had afterwards abandoned for a life of villainy. The strangers remained in the castle as domestic servants, and both natives and strangers, as if blessed at the same time with their master, lived contentedly as he did, neither giving nor receiving injuries, unarmed and respected. But when, on the descent of the German troops, several fugitives from the threatened or invaded dominions arrived at his castle to request an asylum, he rejoiced that the weak and oppressed sought refuge within his walls, which had so long been regarded by them at a distance as an enormous scarecrow, received these exiles with expressions of gratitude rather than courtesy. He caused it to be proclaimed that his house would be open to any who should choose to take refuge there, and soon proposed to put not only his castle, but the valley itself into a state of defense, if ever any of the German or Burgomascan troops should attempt to come thither for plunder. He assembled the servants who still remained with him, like the verses of Torty, few and valiant, addressed them on the happy opportunity that God was giving both to them and himself of employing themselves for once in aid of their fellow-creatures, whom they had so often oppressed and terrified. And with that ancient tone of command, which expressed a certainty of being obeyed, announced to them in general what he wished them to do, and above all impressed upon them the necessity of keeping a restraint over themselves, that they who took refuge there might see in them only friends and protectors. He then had brought down from one of the garrets all the firearms and other warlike weapons which had been for some time deposited there, and distributed them among his household, ordered that all the peasants and tenants of the valley who were willing to do so should come with arms to the castle, provided those who had none with a sufficient supply, selected some to act as officers, and placed others under their command, assigned to each his post at the entrance and in various parts of the valley, on the ascent, and at the gates of the castle, and established hours and methods of relieving the guards, as in a camp, or as he had been accustomed to do in that very place during his life of rebellion. In one corner of this garret, divided from the rest, were the arms which he alone had borne, his famous carabine, muskets, swords, pistols, huge knives, and poniards, either lying on the ground or set up against the wall. None of the servants laid a finger on them, but they determined to ask the signor which he wished to be brought to him. Not one of them, replied he, and whether from a vow or intentional design, he remained the whole time unarmed at the head of this species of garrison. 
he employed at the same time other men and women of his household or dependents in preparing accommodation in the castle for as many persons as possible in erecting bedsteads and arranging straw beds mattresses and sacks stuffed with straw in the apartments which were now converted into dormitories he also gave orders that large stores of provisions should be brought in for the maintenance of the guests whom god should send him and who thronged in in daily increasing numbers he in the meanwhile was never stationary in and out of the castle up and down the ascent round about through the valley to establish to fortify to visit the different posts to see and be seen to put and to keep all in order by his directions oversight and presence indoors and by the way he gave hearty welcomes to all the newcomers whom he happened to meet and all who had either seen this wonderful person before or now beheld him for the first time gazed at him in rapture forgetting for a moment the misfortunes and alarm which had driven them thither and turning to look at him when having severed himself from them he again pursued his way End of chapter twenty nine part two